Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang Dhammang Sankang Namasame. So, uh, just to let you know, when we start a Dharma talk, we pay homage to the Buddha. So it can, it's a solo, actually. So it's our way of of uh, acknowledging that the whatever wisdom might be coming through doesn't belong to us, but is from the Buddha. And uh, and any confusion that might come f- through is, will certainly be from me. <laughs> so you have to be discerning as you listen and take what's useful and leave what's not useful aside. So it's, it's very heartening to sit here, to have this view of you all. You know, so many people coming to practice. Can you hear me all right at the back? Yeah, great. Um, it's a, it's a it's a very heartwarming sight, you know, to see you all here with the intention to further your practice and to you know gain insight. And we, you know, we're ourselves working at it. You know, we're not enlightened yet. And as we uh, learn and and uh, struggle and grow stronger and drop some of the unnecessary baggage that uh, you know we all end up picking up as along the way of life. We share what we can, and in, in the hope that you know little little lights will come on here and there, or or that buds buds of awakening will be uh, nourished and and grow a little stronger and it isn't just that you know we're here teaching you but this this process of being in this position and, and teaching is in itself a, a learning and uh, I was very touched to see Laurie here I can't see this minute it's somewhere at the back there who uh, 10 years ago was on a retreat the first time I ever sat on this stage and I was absolutely terrified I couldn't open my mouth for about eight or nine days during this retreat because I was just, ah, there's all these people out there. It was terrifying. And then gradually as the, as the interviews went on, which we'll start tomorrow, I realized that the people sitting at the interviews had the same feeling about me. They were looking at me thinking, ah, it's a nun, you know, I was really scared. And so I, you know, at one point we just said, let's just drop all of that and just be people. We're all people who are practicing together with a wish to awaken and, and let's just drop all of that projection and get on with it. So, uh, so it's a learning being up here too, as well as uh, listening. And uh, today and a little bit yesterday, we've been speaking about the body guiding awareness of and into the body and amazingly even though this this body is kind of big and heavy we can float around in our minds and not really be very aware of it so 
you know, it's important to have this guidance to really come back into connection with the visceral experience of the body as it sits, stands, walks, lies down, eats, stretches, all of the things that a body does, that we do with our bodies. And to also, as I said before, to be aware of our attitude or our relationship to this body. You know, is it something that we dissociate from? Are we just kind of wanting to be up in the mind because it seems more refined or safe or whatever? Because the, the, the Buddha points to the body, he says this, this, everything that we need to become fully enlightened is right here in this fathom-long body. So it's all here. All of those teachings that we listen to, retreats we go on, you know, we, we, we're seeking the truth and, and he's saying it's right here in this body, your body as it is. So uh, we have to learn how to meet this body and understand, you know, in what way is it a teacher? First of all, it, you know, when we're in connection with the body, we're present, we're right here. It is, it is happening now like this. And uh, it's also it's very sensitive, you know, to be to have a body is is a very sensitive experience. It's both robust and uh, miraculous in its ability to heal and and grow, and it's also very sensitive. And sometimes it can feel much nicer. I certainly have spent times not wanting to be very embodied because it's much nicer just to dwell in the realms of thought and ideas, and maybe a little dreaming. And then to be in the body, then you have to meet all kinds of stuff, especially if you have trauma from the past. Then you have to meet that, and there can be a strong resistance to actually fully being embodied. And I would say I'm still working at it, actually. I'm still working at the being embodied experience. Sometimes it's better than others. Sometimes it's very strong, very present, there's a real sense of resting into this physical form and other times I have to work at it, you know, whoop, catch myself, bring myself back. So uh, it's an ongoing practice. Um, and uh, just to give the framework, so we're, we're kind of loosely teaching around the four foundations or establishments of mindfulness and, and body being the first of those four establishments of mindfulness. Feeling being the, the second. Mind being the third. Mind, mind states. And uh, dhammas or phenomena or um, objects of mind being the fourth. So, you know, first of all, we get, <coughs> we get into contact with this body here. And, and then start to... Uh, be aware of you know, what feelings are present. So I just want to speak a little bit about this word feeling because in English it doesn't quite, uh, it has a much broader term than, than the word Vedana that the Buddha was using. So when the Buddha uses the word Vedana, which we translate, it has been translated as feeling, he's not speaking about something like emotion or anger or... You know, he's not speaking about something broad like that, but about something very specific. So, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, 
neither pleasant or painful feeling. It's very, very simple. And uh, it can also divide it between mental pleasant and unpleasant and, and physical pleasant and unpleasant feelings. So that's, you know, you can, you can take it into a little bit more refinement, but that's basically what the, you know, the, the kind of framework that the Buddha is offering for us to investigate our experience. And uh, I think it's very important to remember, like we just had this chanting earlier on where we're, we're paying homage to the Buddha, we're recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, paying homage. You know, the Buddha was a human being, as we are, who experienced pleasure and pain, who experienced, in his life, experienced wonderful pleasures. In fact, he says, uh, whatever, whatever worldly sensual pleasure a person can experience, it will not be, it can be equal to mine, to what I've experienced, but it can't be greater than. So he's kind of had it as good as it gets, we could say. And uh, whatever unworldly pleasant feelings, so that's like the, the, the bliss of meditation, the subtle beauty of, of meditation, whatever unworldly pleasant feeling someone has, a, another, a person has experienced, it can be equal to what I've experienced, but not greater than. So he's taken that as far as it goes. And also whatever painful feeling a person may experience, it can be equal to what I've experienced, but not more painful than. So that also is an ascetic he took to its absolute limit until he nearly died. So this is a guy who, you know, took things <laughs> to the extreme. And uh, so he's saying, I know that the most pleasant, I know the most subtle pleasant, I know the most painful. And, and then he gives this teaching on feeling, painful feeling, pleasant feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, it's just that. It's just that. So, um, you know, usually we think of feeling in a much more nuanced way, much more complex way, where we're bringing together the, the body and then feelings and perceptions and thoughts, and it all gets mixed up together and we call it a feeling. And then we identify with it, it's my feeling, I feel like this, and, and then we've created <laughs> this, this uh, self with feelings that needs to do something in relation to those feelings. So it needs to push something away or get, get what it wants, get what they, we want. <coughs> and uh, this is kind of, you know, this is very, very quick. This happens very quickly and so we, we're doing it again and again. So the Buddha is trying to point out in a very simple way how we can save ourselves the trouble of getting caught up in all of that. And uh, I, I can't often mention that I was a, a you know, very sensitive person. I'm a little bit less than I was, but one of those people who picks everything up. You know, you go into a room and you pick up the vibe, and you, somebody's feeling annoyed and you feel it, and you know, there's this kind of. Ooh. And so life was very difficult, you know, because I was kind of constantly being influenced by my environment in a, in a way that was a little overwhelming. And then one day sharing this with, with my teacher in England at the time, and, and he just said, 
You know, the Buddha spoke about three kinds of feeling. Is it pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant or painful? And when he said that, it was like, oh, you know, what am I, what, what is all the fuss about? You know, what am I getting so involved in it for? It's just one of those three. So that was like an incredible freedom to be able to come from this, you know, excitement and, and wanting to get involved or fear or, you know, feeling um, bullied by somebody's energy, whatever it might be, to this is painful feeling. It feels like this. And then knowing, feeling, it has a cause. It's, it's arisen because of a, a particular cause. It's there for a while and it ends. So we don't have to uh, act on it. You can know it. It can be known for what it is. And I really, you know, really encourage you to to practice this to through these days and nights, to notice, you know, when there's when pleasant feeling has arisen. So today at the meal time, <laughs> that's been very good, taking just what I needed, and then. We got to the chocolate chip, <laughs> espresso, gluten-free <laughs> cookies, homemade cookies. Like, oh, you know. And then the mind falls into the tray of cookies and one goes into the bowl and another one goes into the bowl. And oops, and they get back and then and they're eating the meal and then maybe I'll just have one. Um, and then I find I'm halfway through the second one. Oh, okay. And it's, you know, in a way it's very harmless because it's just a little cookie. But then I was noticing, well, what happens next? Okay, then the next thing is I'm feeling sleepy in the meditation. So I come back to the sitting in the afternoon and it's hard to stay awake because I've had a little bit too much to eat, a bit too much sugar. And then it's like, okay, that's all part of that experience of following pleasant feeling. So there's pleasant feeling of the cookie and then there's the the kind of losing oneself in it for a moment or two. And then and the promise, you know, that that heap of cookies has a promise of satisfaction. It's a pretty good one actually, he was really saying it today. And then you take that and and, you, and there is that satisfaction for a little while. There is the gratification. And there is the the um yeah, the the kind of Losing of the sense of separate self for a few moments in pleasure, and then, and then it's gone. And then a little bit later on, it turns into unpleasant feeling, sleepy, can't stay awake, stomach's a bit too heavy. So just following through, you know, following through when, when the mind is attracted to something. There's not a lot on offer here, so you can't go too far wrong. But uh, and it, and it's a safe environment to explore. So, you know, attracted and you follow, follow your greed or follow sense pleasure and, and then just keep on noticing what happens next. Follow it through. Follow it through to the bathroom, you know. Take it right the way through. Because it goes through. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, and the, this is the Buddha's teaching. He, he really lays it out there. You don't just look at the nice bits, look at the whole process. And then when you look at the whole process, is it really that worth it? Is it really worth it? So feelings, these three kinds of feelings, they have... Uh, so there's the, 
there's what happens when the mind is flooded. So it, there can be like sensual desire, and then the mind is flooded with sensual desire. It's called the asava, and you just don't see clearly, and you just all you can see is what you need to have in order to ful- fulfill that desire. So that's when the mind is flooded, overwhelmed with sensual desire. Could be it could also be equally flooded with ill will. So again, you know, we're living in a very, uh, through the, in this retreat, in a very protected environment. It's very, very beautiful, very safe. People are careful and silent. But still, you know, maybe somebody walks heavily on their heels and then we feel like, ah, why do they have to walk so noisily? Or somebody is careless with the door and the door slams. And then immediately there's ill will towards that person. Why do they have to be so mindless? So, you know, your attention's out there on that person and it's not here on this one who's not aware of the ill will that has arisen. So, you know, we need to, we need to keep an, an eye on what's going on here. And not in, a, not in a puritanical way, not in a judgmental way, but in a curious and interested way. Because when we pay attention to what's going on here, this is, it's, it's this that will show us the way to liberation or to freedom from suffering. So it's in the heart, it's right in the midst of, of dukkha or of suffering that we find freedom from suffering. It's not from glossing it over, pretending it's not happening or trying to be better than one is, but it's be, by being very honest and looking clearly at what's going on. So, uh, and also delusion, you know, the mind can be lost in delusion, dreaming, fantasizing, um, doubting, and going round and round in circles. So, uh, when we don't have mindfulness, then we're we're lost, and that delusory state has kind of overwhelmed the mind for a while. And then we wake up, and it's like, oh, what was going on there? Or it might be that we are, we have a, a deep habit, <clears throat> you know, we might have cultivated a strong habit in our lifetime to go into one of those places, to go into delusion or to go into aversion or desire as an escape. But it's the wrong kind of escape. It's an escape that takes us, that really gets us more and more entrapped. So we need to, when we notice that the mind has got lost in one of those places, to really appreciate that moment that we've of, of realizing, ah, I was totally caught up there. That is a wonderful moment. Don't don't uh, beat yourself up for having been caught up. Praise yourself. Celebrate that you've noticed, and that in the moment that you've noticed, you are no longer caught up. You're mindful, and even if that energy hasn't subsided yet, as long as there's mindfulness you're in the driver's seat and that's a good thing so it's very important to you know encourage yourself in the practice and you know celebrate celebrate those moments of clarity even if they don't come by very often all the more reason to appreciate them when they come really important because i think uh, we tend uh, of course there's lots of individuals here but there's a tendency in the Western world to 
criticize, judge, expect more than we are and than we've developed. And so we, you know, we practice with this overlay of, of our conditioning, which is saying, you're not good enough, you should be better, you should, you should know by now, why haven't you got this yet? So it's important to, if that is going on, it's important to notice that and to, I know you Mara, to, to call it for what it is because that isn't a voice that will lead you on, that won't bring, that is not a, that is not a voice that leads to enlightenment, it's a voice that leads to more selfing and not a, not a happy self either. So, you know, there's a difference between encouraging and, and kind of spurring ourselves on and criticizing, judging, banging, you know, telling ourselves off or criticizing. It's very different. So please have a look at what is, what is your conditioning. And don't, don't think, well, you know, I grew up in a Protestant family and, you know, we were like this and therefore, or whatever. Don't, don't just give in to it, but, but take an interest in it. Recognize it's conditioned. You know, when you came out of your mother's womb, it wasn't there. You were open. You were inquisitive. You were like a sponge, taking it all in. And then you got, as I said, she was saying, you got socialized in a particular way, in a particular culture. And that isn't who and what you are. That's, that's a conditioned phenomenon. So you can tease that apart and start to see, well, what's, you know, what, what is it like if I don't do that? What is it like underneath? And then coming more directly in, into contact with the, you know, the direct experience of this body sitting here, of these, these feelings, pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful. So I mentioned the asava, the, the kind of flooding of the mind, as which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. And uh, and there's also the underlying tendencies, the anusaya. So you know we can deal with the floods and the and the precepts that everyone's taken. That's part of dealing with the floods. So that it might flood the mind, but we're not going to act out. We're not going to speak from those places. And that and and by not acting out, it gives a chance for that to be seen for what it is and for it to end, because these things always end. They will end on their own. We don't have to, we don't have to um, be afraid of them, actually, if, if we have the containment of, of the precepts, because they, will, they may flood the mind and then they'll stop. And then there'll be a, a pause or an opening. And we'll see the difference between the mind that's flooded with ill will and the mind that isn't. And uh, just by noticing that space, it, noticing the emptiness, the absence of ill will, in itself is, a, is an incentive to, you know, give more space to that, to not feed the ill will, and to and to feed the awareness that is free from wanting and not wanting. But also, anyway, there's the uh, underlying tendencies. So, just to know that hidden underneath pleasant feeling is the underlying tendency to greed. So hidden underneath those cookies today was the underlying tendency to greed, which I noticed, all of it. 
it all played out. <laughs> and uh, hidden underneath painful feeling is the underlying tendency to ill will. And hidden underneath neutral feeling, neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, this is important, <laughs> because we, we tend to miss that altogether. Hidden underneath neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling is the underlying tendency to ignorance. So we tend, you know, you may notice in the meditation when it's pleasant, we notice that, oh, it's really, I'm having a really good seat, it's really nice. Or when it's painful, we notice that. It's like, oh, God, you know, I just can't settle for a minute. My knee's painful, my back. And, and so the, the mind is locked onto those painful experiences. But we, we tend to completely overlook the neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. Because it doesn't feel like anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what is it? You know, it doesn't grab me. What is it? So it's very good to train our attention to just sweep through the body. We can do a guided meditation tomorrow where we just sweep through the body and notice the pleasant feeling. And sweep through and notice the painful feeling. And sweep through and notice the neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. Sometimes it's, it's helpful to, to word it in that way because when we know what painful feeling feels like and we, and we know what pleasant feeling feels like, then as we sweep through, we can notice all those big gaps that are neither one or the other of those. And they also need to be known because hidden under them, hidden under that neutral feeling is the tendency to ignorance. So as we do this practice, it sounds very simple, and it is very simple actually, but it is, uh, it's, 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 a, it's one of those things that is because it's so simple, it's difficult to do because we want it to be more, we want to make it more interesting or we want it to be more complex or, you know, we feel like we don't want to waste our time with something so kind of basic. But in feeling, in knowing feeling for what it is, knowing feeling is feeling, it's a key to being unstuck from the, the habits and the, and, the, and the kind of compulsion of constantly running after what is pleasant and running away from what is unpleasant and falling asleep to what is neither of those two. And as long as we keep doing that, as long as we keep you know, following the pleasant and running away from the unpleasant, it's an endless journey. Because in life, there are both pleasant and unpleasant. We cannot, even though the society, particularly American society, loves to tell us, you know, you can have, you can have pleasure. You can have everything you want. You know, the pursuit of pleasure. You can have it good. You can you can be happy all the time. You know, it, it sells it all the time to us. Constantly, consumerist society trying to sell us endless happiness, avoiding pain. And this is a, it's a complete delusion, it's, it's impossible. When there's pleasure, there's going to be pain. When if they have pain, there's going to be pleasure. The body experiences both. We can't avoid either of them actually. And sometimes you want to avoid both. You know, I don't want to have a nice feeling or a nasty feeling, I just want to not feel anything. And uh, that isn't the path to enlightenment either.
So um, there are also uh, different. The Buddha uses different words for for craving or desire. And uh, raga is is one is like passion. This is a very strong passion. Um, and tanha is another word that is often used, and that's like a thirst or a craving. And then uh, karma chanha, karma chanda, excuse me, karma chanda. So chanda is is um. It's like a, an enthusiasm or a moving towards, and it isn't in itself either positive or negative. It depends what it's directed towards. So karma chanda would be directed towards sensuality, and that will basically will not lead us to enlightenment. And then dharma chanda is 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 like the desire to practice, the desire to understand dharma, and that's like a wholesome desire that will lead us further. So it's not that desire in itself is wrong or bad, but it's to see, well, where, where is it directed? Is there a desire to do good, to be generous, to awaken, you know, to gain wisdom? These are all really wholesome desires. <coughs> and of course, at some point, you've got to drop them too, but they drop when you've fulfilled their purpose. And then there's the... Um, the, the tanha, the, the thirst, the craving... And that's uh, that's kind of an endless journey. So is the the thirst for sensuality, the thirst for becoming, for being somebody, something, and the thirst for annihilation. So probably you know everybody has experienced all of those thirsts. And just to really know them for what they are, because when that thirst for annihilation comes, it can be so real. We just want to get out of all of it, had enough. And we can even convince ourselves that it's Dhamma, but it isn't. It's a, it's a thirst, it's a craving. So just to, just to be aware in your practice when the, any of those three arise, you know, do I just want to zone out, get away from it all? Do I want to become enlightened? Do I want to just in, you know, lose myself in sensuality? So just recognizing when they arise, and they arise and they're there for a while and they pass. We don't have to, when we know them for what they are, we don't have to follow them, at least even if we, we we get caught, we, we as soon as we notice, okay, drop it, drop it. This is not leading to enlightenment. And it can be, you know, when we when we look at the the kind of map of the Buddha's teaching, that we feel a bit stuck, because you know, <laughs> desire arises, and then it's like, oh, okay, not to follow that, and then. What can I do? I'll just pull a blanket over my head and oh no, that's Bibhavatana, I can't do that. And, you know, we, we get kinda of get stuck, we don't know where to move. Because wherever we go, the Buddha's kinda of saying, Well, that's not leading to enlightenment and that's not leading to enlightenment and that's going in the wrong direction. So then we need to simply be conscious of what's going on, not to get stuck. 
just to be conscious. So sometimes we have to consciously become unconscious. <laughs> sometimes it's like that, it's, it's all too much and we just need to go and lie down and pull a blanket over our head. But we do it in a conscious way. We know, okay, I've reached my limit now. I actually cannot deal with this now. And so I'm going to do this. And maybe even just say, I'm going to do it for 20 minutes, you know. Whatever. I'm going to do this consciously because it's, w it's where I'm at at the moment. And I need to do it. And then you come out of that. So if you go into it consciously, you'll come out of it consciously. It hasn't caught you in the same way. And I want to re just read this little um, piece from the, one of the suttas in the Majjhima from the Sutta of the Two Kinds of Thought. And it's where the Buddha is recognizing, he realizes that, that he can categorize his thoughts into two kinds. And I find it interesting that he would even have one half of them, but anyway, so he realizes he can he can divide his his thoughts into two kinds. There are thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And then there are thoughts of that of of uh, renunciation, thoughts of non ill will or loving kindness, and thoughts of non cruelty or compassion. So he. He recognizes, oh, I can divide, you know, when, when these thoughts arise. So he's not identifying with the thoughts, but he's recognizing, I can, oh, I can put them into that category. Thoughts of ill will, thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of cruelty. Or I can put them into that category when they're thoughts of non-ill will, non-cruelty, non-sensuality or renunciation. And in doing that, you're not, you know, becoming them. You're knowing them for what they are. And he has this reflection, he says, when he sees thoughts of sensual desire, ill will and cruelty arise in his mind, he reflects, this leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana. So he uses that reflection when those, those thoughts arise. So... And, and for the Buddha, who, you know, we're not there yet, but for the Buddha, he just has to bring that reflection to mind and they subside immediately. For us, probably it won't be quite so easy. But at least we would be, you know, not buying into those thoughts as, as who and what we are. So we don't have to grapple with them. We don't have to try and annihilate them or, or you know, always endlessly follow them because we always did. But we can know them for what they are and reflect on, you know, does this lead to my welfare? Does this lead to the welfare of others? Does this lead to the welfare of both? If the answer is no, then at least, you know, then staying with it, holding with it. It may not go immediately, probably won't, but it's, but it's, it's contained within awareness and wisdom. So, uh, you know, as we practice in that way, the strength and the power of those thoughts and those drives <coughs> weakens, it get, gets weaker. And as we reflect on, you know, does this benefit me? Does this benefit you? Does this benefit both of us? 
and and connect with that wish, you know, wish for our own liberation and and for the liberation or at least well-being of others. So if we connect with that intention, our own well-being and the well-being of others, it's like an incentive to just stay steady with those those drives, those compulsions, those deeply ingrained habits. And through staying steady with them and aware, they will gradually wear themselves out. And then, you know, on the other side, we can cultivate thoughts of renunciation. So renunciation is a funny old word in English. We don't use it much, do we? It's mostly monastics, I think, that use it. (laughs) Thoughts of renunciation, giving something up. So renunciation is giving up what we, what is promising happiness for something that will give us a greater happiness. So maybe we've, you know, maybe we've got something, maybe I've got something I like and there's not much of it. And then I realise, oh, I sense she likes that too. And I feel like, oh, but you know, there's not much of it and I like it. Mm. But then if I give it to her, it actually feels better than if I keep it for myself. So I'm giving up what I like in order to benefit not just one person, but two. So I, I get greater happiness and then she gets happiness too. Not saying I always manage to do it. <laughs> but that's, that's what renunciation is. It's giving up what is good for, for something much better, much greater. And uh, the thoughts of loving kindness thoughts of compassion you know, we can we can re- when we catch those those negative thoughts of, of ill will or aversion or cruelty to recognize them and just flip them around you know with the same person maybe well maybe free from all suffering and then we can come back to the feeling in our own body. So we might have been act- we might have been triggered by somebody, we feel really angry, and we want to put it out on that person. And then we say, maybe well, maybe free from all suffering. And we come back to our own visceral experience, painful feeling in the body. It feels like this. It is not who and what I am. It is changing. And we can stay with it until it ends and then stay with it a little longer and feel the space feel the space and feel the strength that comes through staying steady with these changing feelings so it's inevitable over these days that we'll we'll experience many different feelings and this setup is is perfect for investigating, getting to know, gaining a, a stronger connection with the, the feelings that arise. You know, in, in our daily lives, probably for you in your daily lives, it's, it's much more overwhelming. It's much more coming at you. So it's difficult to, uh, to get a handle on what's going on. But here, especially since there's not much else happening, you have lots of opportunity to, to get to know the feelings that arise. Their, their tone, their sense of urgency. So, you know, feeling it has this pushing and pulling quality. 
Pleasant feeling wants to pull you in. Painful feeling wants to push you away. And just so, just staying with that feeling. And as you sit, as we sit in meditation, there will be times when the body starts to feel painful. And we want to move. And so, you know, we can get into this juxtaposition of like, now I'm going to, either I'm going to just sit here and not move, bear with the pain, or, oh, it's painful, I'm going to move, you know. So we want to find the middle way where we're not just enduring and kind of destroying our bodies as we sit here in a willful way, but also we're not just moving every time it gets a little uncomfortable. But we stay with the feeling, the painful feeling. We know, oh, this is painful feeling. It feels like this. It's got this kind of sense of urgency to it. It's nagging. It's, you know, and it's in this part of my body and it's moving like this. So you take an interest in it just, just for a little while, not, not for too long. And then you can move and then notice the freedom from that painful feeling. Or maybe there's a f- painful feeling somewhere else. Or maybe it's still painful, but it's a little bit different, you know, whatever. But just to, you know, to, to not react either in a, in a I'm going to sit here and endure it way or in a I can't bear it way, but to take an interest first and explore it a little bit first and then move. And you can do the same with pleasant feeling. Not just fall straight into it, but what does it feel like? What kind of pull does it have? What would what what would it feel like if I didn't follow it? Can I could I bear it? You know, just explore the territory. It's rich. So uh, you know, if you if you find that you're bored, I can promise you it's because you're not paying attention to feeling. And probably neutral feeling has taken over. <laughs> So uh, you have to sharpen the focus a little bit. Okay, so I'd like to offer that for tonight. Yeah, we should do the closing, the sharing blessings. So um, we do the sharing of blessings in English on page 33 of the little chanting book. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, 
May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. So tomorrow there is a wake-up bell at 5 a.m. And then we have the first sitting here at 5.30. And we start the sitting, you know, quietly. And we do the chanting at the end. So when you come in, the lights will be down. And we just want to you know, experience when the light is coming outside. And then uh, we have that we, we start the chanting about uh, 5.15. Um, no, no, not 5.15, uh, 6.30 <laughs> or 6.20, depending. 6.30, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. And we can end with the closing homage, which is... Um, on page 27. <clears throat> the noble, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.